The word today is John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, parentheses, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Thanks, Dad. Well, this evening... We're going to close out the first chapter, so it's three weeks on the first chapter. That's fun. Um, Tonight's sermon is called The Power of Witness. The Power of Witness. I thought a lot this week about witnessing because of what this chapter talks about. And, you know, I I grew up with uh, two Christian parents who've loved God as long as I've known them. And... um, you know, it's interesting because I've gone to seminary and I've done a lot of study. But to me, the, the witness that I received more than anything was their character. I've always felt that their character was what showed me what Jesus was like. And I'm not saying that they didn't talk to me about Jesus or read the Bible to me or any of those things. But I just have always felt that the, the premier way in which I understood Jesus was through their character was through the way that they were hospitable and generous with people, the way that they always loved people well. 
And um, while that is certainly true, I think studying this passage this week reminded me that there is a power to sharing the words of what Jesus has done for you. There is a unique and special power in sharing those words. And I think we don't do it enough. And I don't even mean just with people we don't know where we, we're talking about evangelism. I mean sharing the testimony of what Jesus is doing for us day in and day out with others around us and communing about that. So it opens up this passage with John the Baptist again, right? John is seeing Jesus coming to him. And John says again, behold, the Lamb of God is, is coming. Right? This is the Lamb of God. And he points to Jesus. And it's interesting because these disciples must have been pretty good disciples of John because they believe him. In fact, they leave John. They stop being his disciples and they become Jesus' disciples. How's that for humility? This man loses his own disciples by pointing them to Jesus. And they're such good students, they believe him. That they're like, hey... I guess so. Uh, you told us this other guy is even greater than you, so we'll go with him. And you know, it's interesting because we'll come back to John the Baptist later in his testimony about Jesus in John 3. But there is a, a huge humility on John the Baptist's part. And he points out the Lamb of God and says, There he is. Behold, the Lamb of God. And so they go to check it out. And we don't know who these disciples are yet. They're, they're talked about later on, they're identified. But later on, um, we, what we find out is that the first, these two disciples, one of whom is Andrew, who becomes one of the twelve, and the second is an unnamed disciple. It never says who they are. And so many scholars interpret that as this is the author, right? This is that beloved disciple we, sh- we see throughout the gospel, that this unnamed disciple was probably John the Apostle, right? John the Apostle. That's Now, it never says that explicitly in the text, but that's what most scholars assume. There's this author who's kind of been coy about his presence. He calls sometimes the beloved disciple, sometimes he just leaves himself nameless, is the idea. And and so what happens is you have this unnamed disciple in Andrew, or these two disciples of John, who go with Jesus. And it says that they follow Jesus, right? They follow him. And so they're following him and they ask him, um, sorry, excuse me, Jesus says, uh, why are you seeking me? Why are you seeking me? He says that to them as they follow him. And so what ends up happening is they say, Lord, where are you staying? See, the culture, you didn't just outright ask to follow someone and be their disciple. There's there's a process, right? You need to be a uh, a little more quiet about your intention. So they ask, Lord, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And Jesus responds with, come and see, come and see. So they follow and they stay with him for almost a day. It says it was about the 10th hour. Now, there's a dispute on this part too, but what it means, the 10th hour is probably from sunrise, which is 6 a.m. So it's probably four in the afternoon or thereabouts when they follow Jesus. And they go with him to the place where he's staying. And they just sit and listen and and soak in and have conversation with Jesus. And I was struck by the beauty of that, that they went into 
to a place, into a space with Jesus and just sat and had conversations. Now, we don't have, have the content of those conversations anywhere in the scriptures of what they just sat and talked about this first time they met Jesus. But I just think about the hospitality of Jesus. I feel like it's not something we think about very often because we think about Jesus, the itinerant preacher, right? The one who walked around and, and the, the son of man who has no, no place to lay his head. And yet here we see Jesus inviting them into his home, this hospitality of him as a teacher, to invite these disciples into his life and into his home. I was struck by that this week. Anyway, when they go out, it says, then it says that this, one of these two disciples is Andrew. And it's interesting because we don't learn a lot about Andrew throughout the synoptic gospels, throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is kind of the biggest piece we hear about who Andrew is. We know, it even says in the text, he's Simon Peter's brother. And obviously, at this point, when this gospel was written, Peter had already taken on a massive place in the church, right? This kind of head, in many ways, of the church. And so they identify Andrew. How how are you going to know who Andrew is? Well, he's Simon Peter's brother, right? And so Andrew goes out, and he finds his brother, Okay, that's in, in John 1, 40 to 43. Andrew witnesses to his brother, Simon. And he tells Simon, he says, we've found the Messiah. He gives a witness about who this Jesus is. And so then he brings his brother to Jesus. And when Jesus looks at Simon, he says, you will be called, Simon, son of John, you will be called Kephas. Kephas in the Greek, right? It's an Aramaic. In that day, they spoke the language Aramaic. That's the language they would be speaking. And so they take the word kepha, which means a rock or a stone, and they put it into a Greek word that would make sense to Greek readers, kephas. And then they translate it to petros, which is Greek. So they would understand petros. Oh, everyone knows that's stone. Okay, that's a stone or a rock. So they... John clearly thinks that his readers may not understand some of these Aramaic terms. He has a broader audience in mind in terms of who's going to be listening. So he translates it into Greek that this is, right, the rock, as Matthew 16 is going to talk about, right? And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, that's not here in the John account, but that is in Matthew 16. And what's interesting here is that Jesus sees Peter and instantly does this. He instantly calls something out in him. This is not just predictive. This is not just, I know one day you're going to be the pillar of my church, the rock of my church. I think this is Jesus saying, I'm going to make you that. This is Jesus calling out something he sees in him and also proclaiming that he is going to do that work in Peter. Peter is going to become the rock of the church because Jesus is going to invest in him and disciple him. And Peter goes from hearing about Jesus, hearing about Jesus from his brother, Andrew, to experiencing Jesus in this moment. When Jesus gives him identity, Jesus changes his name. To Peter from Simon. And that identity is really, interestingly, throughout all of church history, right? He's known as Peter. 
That's the name by which he goes. This identity change from Jesus sunk deep into Peter's soul. And so, like I said, he says, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which translated as Peter. In verse 43, it says, the next day he, pur- he purposed to go into Galilee. And this is interesting to me. Because the he is ambiguous. That's one of the things about pronouns that's hard, right? Especially in the Bible. They're ambiguous. You don't know the referent. So one thing you'll see is in the NIV, it translates it and and it interprets it and says, Jesus went to go into Galilee. But in the actual text, it doesn't say whether it's Jesus or someone else. I think that actually in this passage, it is Andrew going. Not Jesus. See, what happens if you read the verse when Andrew goes to to Peter, it says, Andrew first went to his brother. He first went to his brother. Well, usually that implies there's a second act, right? If he first does something, okay, well, then there's the next. I actually think Andrew witnesses to his brother and then to a friend, Philip. He goes to his brother, his family first, and tells him about this Messiah they found. And then it says he purposed to go into Galilee. I think that he is Andrew, not Jesus. And it's implied that then Andrew brings Philip to Jesus. It never says he brings him to Jesus. But it's a condensed narrative, right? It's very compact and concise. And so the idea is, after telling his brother, he goes and finds his friend, Philip, and he says, come, right? The same kind of idea. We found the Messiah. Come, see him. And so Andrew testifies also to Philip, and Philip comes. And when Jesus sees Philip, he says, follow me. He gives him an invitation. Follow me. Your friend's already doing it, right? Your, your, your town mate, right? It says they're all from the same town. Andrew, Peter, and Philip are all grew up in Bethsaida. So they all are following Jesus, and then from there, Philip goes to a friend. See, that's the other reason I don't think it's Jesus going, is because the passage is consistent about witness from other people about Jesus. If Jesus does go to Philip, it's the only time in the whole chapter he goes to someone. Every other instance is someone going and testifying about Jesus. So I think that's one of the reasons I think it's Andrew, actually, who goes. But Philip, once he's heard the witness about Jesus, Philip goes to his friend, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, yes. And it's interesting because Nathaniel is essentially an unknown character. There's no testimony about Nathaniel anywhere else in the, in the Gospels. It's only in John. And so we kind of wonder, and everyone kind of wonders, who's this guy? Who's Nathaniel? He's not one of the 12, by that name at least. He's not one of the 12, and we don't really know. The most convincing argument I've heard, and and I think this is probably what I, I would say I think, because all of these characters are the apostles coming to Jesus, right? All these characters are the apostles coming to Jesus at the very beginning of his mystery, uh, of his ministry. They're all coming to Jesus. And uh, the one person who's paired with Philip consistently 
in all of the uh, gospel, uh, in all of the gospel lists of the apostle, right? There's sections where the apostles get listed, all twelve of them by name. In all three, there is one person who's paired with Philip. It's Philip and Bartholomew. Philip and Bartholomew; those two are paired. And so my, my guess is that Nathaniel is probably the given name of Bartholomew. See, Bartholomew, it's possible, was actually what they call a, a patronymic name, right? He was named for his father. It's the same thing we saw earlier with Simon, son of John, which in Matthew 16 says Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, so whenever you see Bar, often it's, for example, in Acts, Barnabas, remember? It explicitly translates his name. Barnabas means son of encouragement, son of encouragement. And he would go by that name. He would go by the name Barnabas. And so Bartholomew is possibly son of Ptolemaeus, right? A good Greek name, Ptolemaeus. And so it's possible he went by that name, and, and Nathaniel was his given name, and Bartholomew was this nickname he went by. And there's many other spots we see kind of nicknames or having to delineate because there's four James. It's like, okay, James the son of Alphaeus, and James the son of, you know, James the Lord's brother, and James son of Zebedee. And so they have to kind of distinguish. So that's possibly what's going on with Nathaniel. And like I said, he's consistently paired with Philip in the apostle list. But Nathaniel, interestingly, when Philip goes to him, Philip tells him this. We found the one that the law and the prophets wrote about, right? The Messiah. We found him. And he explains who it is, right? The two ways you'd understand who a person is. Where they're from, Jesus of Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. And his lineage. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of Joseph. And interestingly, here, it doesn't seem like son of Joseph has a negative connotation. It seems like Philip is just giving his good testimony about who Jesus is. But later on in the gospel, who uses son of Joseph? The Pharisees. They use it to say that we know where he came from. In fact, son of Joseph denies often, it's used to deny that God was his real father, right? We know who his father is. It's Joseph. How could he be from heaven? And that's how the Pharisees use that term. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Nathaniel, or I think Philip is using it um, just innocently. I don't think there's uh, a twist on the words there. But he tells Nathaniel, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That was so intriguing to me because Galilee as a whole was already looked down upon by Judeans, right? Those who would live in Jerusalem and in the capital and in the real province of Israel. They looked down on Galileans, right? They're the, they're the slums. They're the, the, you know, they're the bad people. They're, they're hardly faithful. They probably only make it up to Jerusalem once a year. You know, they're, they're, they're just... Not truly Israelites the way we Judeans are. And what's interesting is Nathaniel, as a Galilean, looks on Nazareth the same way. Even as a Galilean, he, get, Nazareth must be the pinpoint of this. Yeah, and as a Galilean, they're even worse than us. Nazareth, could any good come from there? 
And I was struck by that as I, as I thought about it because Jesus maintains that name. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. In fact, in Acts they say they're the sect of the Nazarene. And they use that as a way to put them down. Right? They're the sect of the Nazarene. From Nazareth, you know that guy? <laughs> That's how they use it. And I was struck by that because Jesus never disowns that title. Again, the humility of the Son of God to maintain Jesus the Nazarene. Because you know what he could have been? Jesus the Bethlehemite. With all the tones of David that would bring up, right? I'm the royal king. I'm Jesus from Bethlehem. I was born there, don't you know? He doesn't. Yeah, he was born there, but he grew up in Nazareth. He was raised in Nazareth. And Jesus, humble man that he is, maintains that. He never displaces that. He never... Jesus was always content to identify with the weakest, with the unloved, with those who were the, the outcast and the looked down upon. And I was struck by that as I studied this week, that Jesus maintained Jesus the Nazarene. What beauty. It was used to, to dishonor and degrade him. And Jesus, as always, found the beauty and the hope that the degraded and the demeaned could find in him. So Nathaniel says, what good could come from Nazareth? And Philip says, well, come and see. Right? What could it hurt? Why not at least come check it out? He's been testified to. Philip has told him the truth of Jesus the Messiah. And he's like, fine, I'll I'll go check it out, right? So Nathaniel goes. And as he's approaching Jesus, Jesus says, ah, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In whom there is no deceit. And if you know the history of the people of Israel, something will come into your mind when you hear Israel and deceit. Israel and deceit. See, the story that should be in the background of this passage is Genesis 28. Genesis 28 is a specific story about Jacob. And he hasn't alluded, Jesus has not yet alluded to Genesis 28 specifically, but if you know the history, he's alluding to Jacob, right? Jacob's name, do you know what Jacob's name means? Deceiver. The deceiver is Jacob's name. And he has his name changed from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, the one who strives with God, one who contends with God. And so he says both of those things. He says that Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So already you're thinking of Jacob. You're thinking of Israel, the man and the nation. And so Jesus clearly hits the mark. Clearly hits the mark in Nathaniel's soul. Because Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How do you know me? Whatever Jesus said in the specific way that it hit Nathaniel, he, he identified with it. He understood himself in that way. To say, how could you know me? And Jesus says, even before Philip came to you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel gives this wonderful confession to close out the chapter. 
Indeed, you are the Son of God, Rabbi, the King of Israel. That encounter with Jesus goes from, what good can come from Nazareth? You are the Son of God and the King of Israel. But the first piece before the encounter with Jesus is Philip's witness. You have to get to an encounter with Jesus. It's what changes lives. But the witness, at least in this chapter, always precedes it. It always becomes before. That there is a witness of who Jesus is that leads you to an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says this to Nathaniel, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? I will show you greater things than this. Truly, truly, amen, amen, is what it says. Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Genesis 28. See, in Genesis 28, Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau, and he's going to find a wife. And when he goes to find a wife, he, in the middle of the night, he lays down, he's in the open, and he lays down, you know, lays his head on a stone, and, and he falls asleep, and he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees what we typically call Jacob's ladder, is what we refer to it as, Jacob's ladder. The word is, is the idea of uh, a mound. In, the NIV translates it as stairway. It's a stairway. It's, it's a mound of rocks that you could kind of walk up and down. The same idea of, of the way you would siege a walled city. You would build a mound so you could scale the wall. And Jacob sees the stairway. And on the stairway, it says angels are going up and down on Angels ascend and descend on this stairway. And Jacob sees that in his dream. And standing at the top of it is the Lord. And the Lord gives him the promises of his fathers. The same promises. He says, I am the God of your father Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. And he promises him descendants. He promises him this land will be yours. And he promises him a blessing, that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The three promises to the patriarchs. And so Jacob wakes up and and he says, this place must be the house of God. So I will name it Bethel, which means house of God, Bethel. That's Genesis 28. This stairway that that Jacob sees is the connection. It's the pathway between heaven and earth. The angels come off the earth heading up to heaven and come down to the earth from heaven. And Jesus calls out Genesis 28 saying, You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? I am the connection between heaven and earth. That dream that Jacob had in Genesis 28, that stairway that he saw, I'm that stairway. 
the connection between heaven and earth, between God and men, between men and God, is me. It's the same image that will open up all the other images he uses later of, I am the way, I am the path, I am the door, he says in John 10. The door for the sheep. All those metaphors are grounded in what he says here in John 1. I am the, the stairway of Jacob. I am the connection between heaven and earth. In this story alone, this passage we've read tonight, you have all these pieces of witnessing. And all of them are going really to close relationships. It's, it's not the, the more um, just open evangelism we see in Acts where they go to people they don't know. This is personal and close relationships. They go to friends, people they grew up with, their brothers. And I don't think I've done enough of that. And my confession is I don't think I have witnessed enough to the power of Jesus in my own life. There is something sacred and powerful about words in communicating with our words about who Jesus is and what he's done with our life. We need to all go out of our way to spend more time speaking the words of witness about Jesus and what he's doing in us. What he's done for us. And hopefully we can make it the kind of thing that's not 20 years ago he did this for me. What's he doing now? How are we as disciples walking with him? What are we learning from him this week? So as I close, I was just thinking this week that we all need to take time to find a way to witness with our words to one another about what Jesus is. I'm not even saying go out and find family who doesn't know Jesus and communicate them. If you do, awesome. We should do that. But just let's talk about Jesus more. Let's talk about what he's done in our lives. Let's communicate to each other what Jesus is doing in our hearts, how we're following him as disciples. That's my prayer for us this weekend. That's what I'll pray over you tonight as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you that I could communicate your word tonight. That in and of itself, this wonderful word is a witness that you left for us to who you are. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for men like Andrew. Men and women like Andrew who would go and, and instantly when they hear about you, they would go and tell the people they love about you. That he, he can hardly call himself a disciple yet. And he would reach out to those close to him and say, I, I think we've found the Messiah. Come meet him. See him. Encounter him for yourself. My words are one thing, but that's not enough. You need to encounter this Jesus so you can determine for yourself if you agree with, with my understanding of him, with my witness to who he is. Lord, I pray that we would all become like that. Would we all be like John the Baptist? Would we all be like Andrew? Would we all be like Philip and go out of our way to witness to those close to us, those that we love, those we consider friends? Let us share more about what you're doing, Lord. 
And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let me bless you real quick. Lord, may we all go out as witnesses this week, trusting in your name. May you bless each person here. May they walk out in strength and in favor with you and with men. That they would walk out and feel blessed and know that you are close to them, that you love them, and you want the best for them. And may they share that with everyone they come into contact with. Love you all. Thank you for coming. Thank you.